twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and he gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered him, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it this day. Father, we pray that you would grant to us spiritual understanding this morning that by the work and power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, Lord, we would just... Have the word come alive to us. Father, that you would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. And so Father, do your work. I pray for your people that they would be receptive to your word. And Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. I once read about a group of ladies, this is over a hundred years ago, but they were meeting regularly to study the scriptures together. And they were in the book of Malachi and they found themselves perplexed by the meaning of Malachi chapter three, verse three, which I'm sure you've committed to memory, right? Okay, well, let me read it for you. It begins, it says, he will sit, speaking of God, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. They didn't understand this. They didn't know what it meant. So to help, one of the ladies promised, volunteered and promised to contact a silversmith that week and report back to the group what he had to say. So later that week, she talked with the silversmith. He proceeded to explain to her the whole process of refining silver. And when he finished, she asked him, do you actually sit while the work of refining is going on? Once you get everything ready and put it into the furnace, do you just sit there? And he looked at her kind of puzzled and he said, of course I do. Of course I do. I must sit there and I must keep my eyes steadily fixed on that furnace. For if the time needed for refining that metal be exceeded even in the slightest bit, the silver will be ruined and unusable. At once, the meaning of Malachi 3.3 came to light in her mind. When the ladies were back together for the study, this is what she told the group. She goes, I get it now. 
Though God sees it needful to put his children into the furnace of trial and affliction, his eye is steadily intent on his work of purification. He won't let us succumb to ruin, but he'll only leave us there just long enough to make us of best use. He keeps his eye on us. I share that story with you because it reminds us of the heart of the passage that's before us. A passage that might seem somewhat out of place to the one that preceded it. You'll remember from last week that in Luke 9, 28 through 36, Peter and John and James were able to go up to the mountain and behold Jesus in his transfigured glory. That was indeed a mountaintop experience, was it not? Both literally and figuratively, it was a mountaintop experience. And in fact, it was so marvelous that we might be led to think that that is the norm of the Christian life. For many, perhaps even some of us sitting here this morning, many of us have bought into the lie that Christianity is all glory with no struggle. All glory, no struggle. The mood of our age, I'll call it the, uh, what have you done for me lately? Mood of the age, the attitude that rules the hearts and minds of so many people. This mood has caused multitudes to view following Christ as a pathway to comfort, a pathway to ease and little more than a solid investment and afterlife insurance that comes with minimal risk and maximal ROI, return on investment. But while the Christian life does come with much blessing, does it not? All the spiritual blessings of Christ are ours. Even though it comes with much blessing, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it is often more like a furnace than a mountaintop high. Christianity is often more like a furnace than a mountaintop high. You could even say that it is more like the Mount of Calvary than it is the Mount of Transfiguration. And for the disciples, and for us, for you, for me, such a realization, when we get hit right between the eyes with that, just as we all are this morning, such a realization comes with many pitfalls. Pitfalls that result not only from the clash of our expectations with reality, but also from that raging war between the flesh and the spirit that each and every one of us as Christians are called to fight each and every day that we walk with Jesus here on this earth. So right here in Luke 9, 37 through 50, we encounter the disciples. I wrote walking, maybe I should say running running headlong into four such pitfalls. First is the pitfall called the lack of faith. Second is a lack of focus. Third, a lack of humility. And fourth, a lack of wisdom. Four pitfalls. It's my hope for us that as we consider these four together, we'll not only learn from them, but Lord willing, we might be equipped to avoid them all together. That's my hope. So let's consider the first pitfall. If you're taking notes, it's our first of four points, a lack of faith. And this comes from verses 37 through 42. Luke, 
uh, the historian writing so that we will be sure, right? That we can be certain about Jesus. He tells us that on the day after the transfiguration, after they've come down from the mountain, a man from the crowd comes up and he cries out to Jesus, asking Jesus to deliver his son, right? Deliver my son, He's possessed by a demon. If you look there, the details are quite frightening, right? There in verse 39, you can look there again. The the details of what's going on, he's convulsing, he's foaming at the mouth, right? Mark tells us in his account that he's almost throwing himself into the fire, right? This is such a terrible thing to behold. You can imagine the desperation of this father. Can't you put yourself in the sandals of those there that day? Can you just imagine the desperation? I think it's heightened when you read verse 40. Apparently he had asked the disciples to cast out the demon. But Luke tells us that they were unable to do it. That brings up a question, doesn't it? Why not? Why couldn't they do it? Do you remember chapter nine? It was just maybe six weeks ago that we were in this passage. Had, had not Jesus uh, sent the apostles out on their internship? Did he not give them, quote, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases? Hadn't they come back and told Jesus all the things that they had done? Why then are they unable to cast this one out? I mean, they've done it before. Why is it not working this time? Well, you can find the answer in verse 41. Look there again with me. Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation. O faithless and twisted generation. You see, the disciples did not fail for a lack of effort. Rather, they failed from their lack of faith. It was not because they had lost their powers, which weren't really theirs to begin with, right? It was the power of God given to them. It wasn't because they're using the wrong techniques, but because of their unbelief. In fact, the words that Jesus uses here, faithless and twisted generation are an echo. They're an echo of Israel's experience after the exodus from Egypt, where Moses, if later you can look up Deuteronomy 32, 5 Moses tells them that they are a faithless and twisted generation. You see, what held these disciples back was unbelief. Unbelief in the power of Jesus to work in and through them. And if you read the text carefully, you'll see that it grieves Jesus deeply. Can you not hear it in his words? How does he continue there in verse 40? How long am I to be with you and bear with you? How long? How long? Jesus is expressing what many commentators have called holy frustration. I think I express holy frustration, but it's not nearly as holy as his, right? This is holy frustration. It's again, like although imperfectly, like a father who wonders when his son will start taking responsibility for his actions, perhaps a teacher who wonders when her student will ever learn to follow instructions. It's that same kind of thing, but it's Jesus, so it's perfect. Jesus is longing for his disciples. He's longing for them to trust him. 
you faithless generation, you twisted generation. Just trust me with a simple faith. Philip Ryken notes that this whole episode reminds each of us that, quote, one of the great sufferings of Jesus's earthly pilgrimage was the unbelief of his own disciples. One of his greatest sufferings was the unbelief of his own disciples. Oh my, how we grieve Jesus the same way. This pitfall of the disciples is our pitfall as well. How often do we say that we believe in God, but we fail to trust him to do what only he can do? How often do we try to serve him in our own strength, only to realize that we're not depending on his strength to see us through? How often do we come up with our own methods to, quote, manage our sin, rather than trusting the power of the gospel to bring real transformation to our hearts through repentance? How often do we think that our own arguments and our own good deeds will bring people to faith in Christ, forgetting that God's grace and God's regenerating power must first change hearts for people to believe in him? Are we not also part of this faithless and twisted generation? Make no mistake, all the things I just talked about are things that only God can do. He uses us, but it's the power of God working through us. And we're called to trust in him through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we get a front row seat, right? There's no one sitting in the front row here today, but in your life, you get a front row seat to marvel at what God does. Have you not seen the marvelous works of God in your life as you step out in faith and trust him to do what you can't do? Have you not seen the marvelous works of Jesus as you step out in faith and share the gospel with someone? Have you not seen the marvelous work of Jesus? It's wonderful to behold. It's wonderful to behold. But even getting a front row seat to such majesty can lead to a pitfall. Even that can lead to a pitfall. Something Jesus points out in verses 43 through 45. And that's the second pitfall that we'll examine this morning. If you're taking notes, number two, a lack of focus. A lack of focus. You'll notice that after Jesus delivers the young boy, Luke notes in verse 43 that, quote, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Everyone there was like, wow, look at this. Everyone's astonished. And in light of all this awe and wonder, what does Jesus do? What does he do? He turns to his disciples and use this as, uses this as an opportunity to call them to look at the cross. He calls them to look at the cross. Maybe, perhaps, so that they will connect his power over demons that he just showed again to the main event, his main event, his battle with the devil. You see, it's only been a week or so in this timeline that Luke gives us since Jesus first revealed to them that he would have to suffer and die. This is something that the disciples could not begin to conceive of. We've talked about this already for a couple of weeks. It's just not in their mind. Suffering Messiah is an oxymoron. It's just nothing they could conceive of. They were conditioned 
to see and to think of the Messiah as doing the things that they had just witnessed, right? Crushing the powers of this world and delivering people from bondage. But Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples didn't get so caught up in marveling over his miracles that they missed the central focus of his ministry. So he tells them again in verse 44, look, he says, the son of man, it's his title for himself. It's the Messiah is about to be delivered, handed over to men. He's reminding them that the main message of the gospel is not that he can perform exorcisms, that he can perform miracles, signs, and wonders, although he can do that, and he's done that a lot. No, the main message of the gospel is that he came to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. The cross is the focus. And the disciples don't understand any of this. And it is made very clear by Luke, and I think this is kind of neat, in a quadruple negative. Did I say that right? Four. Yeah, quadruple negative in verse 45. Look, they did not understand it. It was not revealed to them. They did not perceive it. And they did not ask him about it. Four negatives. The disciples were turning their eyes completely away from the cross it's like when that thing that you know you have to face that someone's told you about, you're like, I'm just gonna ignore it and pretend it's not there. That's kind of what they're doing. There's also spiritual forces at work here. It's being you know, hidden from them for now. But still, there's active denial going on. They lack focus. They're unwilling to even start to wrestle with the truth of the cross is what Luke is saying. How about us? I mean, we know better, right? We live on this side of the gospel story. We know the centrality of the cross to our salvation. It's been revealed to us in full. We know the meaning of Jesus's death and resurrection. We know it better now than the disciples did at this point. Okay, at this point in Luke. So here's a question. Why do we make the same mistake that they did? Why do we make the same mistake? I mean, if you think about it, we do really good, especially here at the chapel. I think the Lord has blessed us. We do a good job of keeping the cross center of our worship. But here's the thing that we must labor at more and more and more. How do we keep the cross at the center of our discipleship? How do we keep the cross at the center of how we live our lives each and every day? I've taught uh, in Africa for almost 10 years now in different settings. And the one thing that I have faced each and every time I'm there, and Mario and I faced it last week, Todd and I faced it in May, each and every time, there's this wrestling that these young pastors are going through where they, they wanna just focus on the blessings and the glory of the gospel. They wanna focus on the good things, right? They're inundated with the health and wealth movement, right? They're inundated with believe in Jesus and you'll get rich and wise, all these things. And, and, and they're trying their best to reach people. And so they're reading the Bible. They're reading these passages that talk about us being blessed in Christ. But then they're dealing with real people who are really suffering. And the moment they start talking about, we're called to suffer for Christ, people shut them off. So they're discouraged, wouldn't you be? 
I mean, none of us as pastors signed up to be Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? They're not gonna listen to you. They're gonna kill you. So they struggle, they wrestle, and I look at them and I tell them, you're not alone. I struggle and wrestle. My church struggles and wrestles. We all wrestle with this issue. So my heart goes out to them, my heart goes out to you because I see so much of myself in questions like this. You see, it's so easy to lose focus and take our eyes off of the cross. It's very easy to become dissatisfied with Jesus and to long instead for all the things that this world has to offer. It is very easy to shy away from the embarrassment that comes from talking about Jesus with your friends and family who don't follow him. And it's also really easy to stay safe in our careers and our callings by compromising biblical principles. I'll put it simply this way. We don't wanna suffer even for Jesus. So we take our eyes off of the cross. But if we long to please God, we have to keep the cross at the center, at the center of both our worship and our daily living. It must remain at the center of our evangelism. It must remain at the center of our stewardship. It must remain at the center of our family and it must remain at the center of our commitment to our communities and mission. We must not lose focus on the cross because such a lack of focus flows right into, and it's very related to the third, the third pitfall that we find in our text. And that is a lack of humility, a lack of humility, or put it another way, a desire to seek greatness for ourselves rather than for God. Verses 46 through 48 contains what I like to call the most pointless argument in the history of mankind. In fact, Luke doesn't even deal with it as much as the other gospel writers do, does he? Because he knows this is the most pointless argument in the history of mankind. The disciples are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. I mean, you're kind of like, it's a bunch of guys. Yeah, see that, right? But you notice the Bible doesn't tell us why. There's all kinds of conjectures and guesses, but I don't really care about that. Let's just be honest. If you've never had an argument like this, you're probably not alive. It is absolute human nature, sinful nature for men and women, right? To compare and contrast ourselves with others. Always looking to gain an edge or advantage over somebody else. It's petty. It's foolish. I like how Pastor Riken, Philip Riken illustrates it. This is what he says. He says, trying to determine the greatest disciple was a little bit like trying to find the world's largest pygmy. Even if it were possible to figure out the answer, it wouldn't even matter. He continues, it's foolish because the disciples were striving to reach the wrong end of the scale. Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves, but rather than carrying their own crosses, they were still trying to climb to the top of some spiritual ladder. In fact, it's the kind of argument that you expect to hear on a playground with children Perhaps that's why Jesus brings a child near. Perhaps that's why he grabs a child and brings the child near. Look again at 47 and 48. 
Jesus knows their hearts. He doesn't have to hear them. He takes a child and he puts him by his side. And this is what he says. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What Jesus does here and what he says here are both very important. In Jesus's day, rabbis generally ignored children altogether. Children were a nuisance, but not Jesus. A famous rabbi right before Jesus's day actually said this, chattering with children will bring a man to ruin. Chattering with children will bring a man to ruin. Jesus, on the other hand, sees the children and he brings them close and he honors them. He takes an opportunity here to demonstrate that humility is required to be his disciple. If you know anything about children, you know that it takes humility to make friends with a child. You have to get down on their level and you have to talk to them in a way that they can understand. That takes humility. It takes a heart for another. So notice the connection that Jesus makes. It takes such humility to truly welcome God into your life. We must have the same kind of humility. The point that Jesus is making is that to do so, you must become the least. We're gonna see this more and more as we progress in Luke, but uh, the kingdom has lots of upside down values, doesn't it? It takes the values of this world and just turns it upside down. And this is one of them. The least are the greatest. The least are the greatest. And while we're busy seeking glory and fame and trying to be influencers and seeking notoriety for ourselves, what can happen is that we can fail to demonstrate the very humility that Jesus himself displayed when he came to save us. For don't forget that Jesus left the glories of heaven to humble himself. His very life on earth is bookended by humility. Think about it. He was laid as an infant upon a borrowed manger, a food trough for animals. And the end of his life, he's laid in a borrowed grave and a borrowed tomb. None of it his. Full humility. But in his poverty, he showed himself to be both great and rich beyond any earthly measure. So it would be good for us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand to stop our petty and fruitless pursuits of earthly greatness. And rather, as Matt reminded us a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus tells us, die to ourselves and live for him and him alone. Well, while John is listening to Jesus talk about true spiritual greatness, his mind's at work. And he's thinking back to a recent encounter that he had with someone else in ministry. Look what he says there in verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. This brings us to our fourth and final pitfall this morning, a lack of wisdom. 
And if you're taking notes, number four, a lack of wisdom. You have to ask the question, what's going on here? Seems so awkward. Uh, seems so out of place. What's going on? Well, honestly, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. Luke is light on the details. For someone who's always a lot of detail, he's very light on the details. But what we can know is that apparently a man was casting out demons in Jesus's name, but he wasn't quote unquote one of them. He wasn't following Jesus with them. And notice it doesn't say he wasn't following Jesus. It doesn't say he wasn't a believer. It says he wasn't following Jesus with them. The focus there, the highlight is with them. He wasn't on their team. He wasn't wearing their, uh, I guess, what am I thinking of here? Jersey, sorry. I'm not sports inclined, if you can tell. Um, they just, he was different. The best we can conclude from this, I believe, is that this is a person who is trying to serve Jesus faithfully, however imperfectly. And it's a person who, unlike the disciples just a few verses before, actually trusted Jesus enough to cast out demons. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He's able to do what they couldn't do because of their lack of faith. The whole point of this being here, it shows us that this is one who is faithful. This is one who does have faith. The juxtaposition is clear. They couldn't cast out the demon because of their lack of faith. Now here's another one that doesn't wear their jersey and walk along with them all the time, but who believes in Jesus and has faith to cast out a demon. But they stopped him because he was wearing that other jersey, I guess. So Jesus warns his disciples, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. You see, the man casting out demons was not against their ministry and therefore they had no business trying to stop him. In fact, doing so would be a massive misapplication of godly wisdom. It's very normal for us to look at others, to look at other Christians and immediately think they should be doing something differently. Now, before I go on, let me be clear. I'm not speaking about fundamental matters of doctrine, okay? There are those who are outside of orthodoxy, okay? And I'm not talking about those. I'm talking of the various ways that fellow true believers do the work of ministry. It's very easy for us to take the seat of judgment and look upon them and say, ah, stop. Maybe that's not what you say, but fill in the blank. <laughs> Listen, unless we're in a position of spiritual authority over them, even if we're correct about some of the ways that, we're, that they are wrong, it's not always our responsibility to correct them. Many times we have a zeal to be right just for the sake of being right. And what happens? We find ourselves doing more damage to the kingdom rather than good. Too often we're like those who really enjoy the work of demolition, but hate the work of building. But the reality is brothers and sisters, you've been called to do both. There's a proper time for both to tear down and to build up. I think Jesus's call here, and it's not my call, this is Jesus's call. It's very clear. Other true believers, other Christians are not the enemy. Other Christians are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And we should do everything we can to encourage other Christians in their battle against him. 
I like how J.C. Ryle says it. He says, we are, quote, a holy alliance against the powers of darkness. And rather than having us attack one another, our supreme commander orders us to keep fighting the right enemy. And that takes wisdom. It takes wisdom that all of us lack. It takes wisdom that comes only from God. There's a time to debate. There's a time to refine. But we have to be careful that we also encourage our fellow believers. I pray that God would help us, myself included, so that we can honor him. So there you have it. Four pitfalls that are so easy to fall into. Lack of faith, lack of focus, lack of humility, lack of wisdom. The disciples fell or ran headlong into them. And so do I. And so do you. So do all of us. But I don't want to end just on their warnings. Because you've been warned. I've been warned all week preparing the sermon. I don't want to end with the warnings. I want us to end on the hope that these pitfalls magnify as well. For even though we're prone to fall into them, even those serve a purpose. Even these pitfalls serve a purpose in our lives, a wonderfully divine and wonderfully redemptive purpose. You might remember there in the introduction, I talked about the refining of silver and how it's a picture of God's work in our lives. I also reminded you that the Christian life is often more like the Mount of Calvary than the Mount of Transfiguration. So I want to end here by calling you to take heart, to take heart. Even when you are in the fire, even when you find yourself struggling in that daily battle between sin and the flesh, you're not alone. The refiner, our Lord Jesus Christ himself keeps his eye, Malachi 3.3, keeps his eye ever on you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And here's the best part of the refining process. Do you know how the silversmith knows when it's finally done? Even if he takes it out and hardens it, how does he know when it's finally done? Because it's shiny enough that he can see his reflection in it. That's when he knows that it's finally refined. The same is true for us. All of our refining is for a purpose, to make us more like Jesus so that we'll see more and more of Jesus in us and in one another to display him and his glory in our lives. So whatever mount you find yourself upon today, my prayer for you is that God will help you not to waste any moment of the life he's given you. He's brought you there for a purpose. Trust him, trust him, amen? And amen.